Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Oge Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone. Oge, what are we talking about today? The novel coronavirus, or now known as COVID-19. Yeah, and we had a lot of great feedback from our last episode that we did. Uh, We'll be talking about that on the back end and uh, of this episode, so definitely stick around after our conversation today in or if you want to hear that. The person we talked to was Dr. Matt Nonneman, who works in the field of industrial hygiene, or as he calls it, exposure science. Industrial hygiene is really how people are kept safe in the workplace. And I, I knew him because he teaches at both the undergraduate and graduate level, and I was able to teach a class with him uh, as a graduate student assistant. And then Emma actually knows him as well because she helps assist some of the exposure science that he does. We thought he'd be a great fit because of his, of his experience working with occupational equipment, such as masks, and knows quite a bit about exposure science. Okay, so Emma, Emma Meda and Ian sat down with Dr. Nanamin, and first they talked about his research. Can you state your name and position with the University of Iowa? Sure. My name is Matt Nanamin, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Occupational and Environmental Health in the College of Public Health at the great University of Iowa. The great UI. So what research are you currently conducting? Yeah, well, the work that I'm doing... Um, Basically, uh, we do laboratory work and we do field measurements of, you know, uh, a bioaerosol. So uh, that's that's an uh, basically a, a, you know a, anything from like a mist or a really fine particle in the air that contains bacteria, virus, or fungi or components of those microorganisms. And you know, our goal is to uh, <clears throat> find ways to easily measure these bioaerosols to help us inform. Uh, you know, action or control uh, activities for public health. If your research was a headline about how the world had been changed in five years, what would the headlines read? Well, I think the, you know, if our, uh, using our research, if we were able to easily measure, you know, like say, for example, virus aerosol right now, um, that would inform when you could use, you know, respiratory protection like an N95. And uh, because, you know, those of resources are limited and you know when you have an outbreak you know of of a you know respiratory virus you know everyone's uncertain when should i wear a mask when should i not and uh masks are in limited supply so i think that would be a really great addition to science definitely so knowing your work in industrial hygiene how do you think that this field could aid the coronavirus outbreak yeah, well, I think the on the industrial hygiene side, you know, we're um, our goal is to measure um, <clears throat> measure exposures to people and um, interpret those exposure measurements and recommend and implement controls. Uh, so a control would be like a ventilation system, or uh, a control would be like you know uh, kind of the lowest tier of control is personal protection. So you know that would be like an N95 respirator. You would you know, put on or, quote, don the respirator Mm -hmm. and doff the respirator, which is taking it off. Yeah. 
So what work do you think could be done on air monitoring and respiratory protection regarding the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, great question. So I think the, um, you know, right now the technology is there to kind of um, like measure particles pretty easily. Um, but the problem is, is, you know, you don't know what's in the particle. And so the, the challenge on the bioaerosol side is, you know, one, when are particles present, which there's typically a lot of particles present, um, you know, in your daily environment. And then two, you know, what's in those particles. And one of the, one of the challenges on the bioaerosol side is, is knowing whether or not, um, one, the organism is in the particles that you're breathing, and then two, whether the organism is alive in those particles. And so the challenge with virus is that, you know, virus is, um, it's, uh, you know, it requires a host organism to replicate. And so you don't know if it's alive unless it replicates. And so you need the cells for it to infect. Um, so that's one of the challenges. You have to sample it and you have to apply it to a cell culture and see if the virus, you know, disrupts the normal cell activity or kills the cell. And that's how you know if the virus is alive. Mm-hmm. All right. So. You've already started to talk about respirators and masks. Can you talk a little bit about what the difference between a respirator and a mask is? Sure. So the um, in the U.S., an organization called the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, they, um, they certify or approve uh, certain types of, of uh, uh, respiratory protection, or we call them respirators. And one of them is a filtering face piece respirator. So the the face piece itself is, you know, is um, the filter, and it's not like a rubber face piece, and it doesn't have cartridges or that sort of thing. And and um, you know, the N95 designation means that it removes 95% of the most um, penetrating particle size. This is kind of technical, but that's 0.3 microns in diameter. It does really well with other particle sizes, and so the you know that's um, kind of the often the recommendation is these N95s and they're used in uh, like in the tuberculosis treatment wards in hospitals and that sort of thing. Uh, so they're really effective um, if they fit you well and if you know obviously there's a good seal on your face. And so when you're out and about and you see other masks that people are wearing, like a surgical mask or some other type of mask. If there's not a good seal on the face, then the protection that it provides is questionable. You know, I mean, it, we're just uncertain about that. And uh, you know, particles could easily go around. You know, the mask, and you could inhale them if they're small enough. Um, <clears throat> so the, that's kind of the real, the real challenge. And um, I know I've seen just um, anecdotally in the community, and then photos online of you know other types of of masks that people will use that aren't necessarily approved by NIOSH and and so the you the question comes up as to their their effectiveness their effectiveness and and um, and so the you know that that's kind of kind of the the challenge we face and and you know but if you go to the to the clinic because you're ill they recommend you put on a mask and again, those are like a surgical style mask. And, and the question is, well, is that, you know, is that barrier there so that when someone sneezes or coughs, it kind of impacts that surface and reduces aerosolization? I think that's kind of the goal of that mask. 
it's less so to where to protect the individual from exposures in the environment. So um, that's kind of the goal of that, uh, I believe. And so, you know, that's where the confusion, I think, kind of exists around masks and mask use and uh, that sort of thing. So the mask that a surgeon is wearing is really trying to keep the germs from, or the um, microbes and germs from the surgeon from getting onto the patient. It's less from getting, you know, germs from the patient back into the surgeon. Right. I mean, I think the, uh, right, the primary goal is to, you know, when, let's say if the surgeon coughs or sneezes or talks, you know, and, um, you know, to keep that kind of oral mucosa bacteria out of the surgical field. And then also on the flip side, if, you know, it can be a basic barrier if there's like splashing or large droplets, um, you know, can prevent those from going in, into the mouth of the of the wearer, you know, so there's mm-hmm. that advantage, you know. <laughs> so why hasn't the CDC or another organization recommended that every person wear an N95 at all times? So I think the, because the challenge is, is we don't, um, you know, you recommend personal protection when you know like where the exposure is, you know, and so if you're not exposed, you know, you're not at risk. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, for example, if you're near, if you're in a public place and and you see someone who's symptomatic, you know, they're coughing, sneezing, or you hear someone coughing and sneezing. I think we've all had that experience of like been in an elevator mm-hmm. and someone just coughs <laughs> or sneezes and we're like, oh my gosh, okay, am I going to get something? Um, I mean, you know, using your your own, you know, senses to kind of say, hmm, maybe now would be a good time to pull out my N95 that I have in my pocket and put it on. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately it's that, you know, knowing where the exposure is and, you know, applying uh, a control, you know, to reduce exposure, you know, like a, a respirator in that kind of, uh, in that environment. and. I was just reading today um, about uh, some recommendations for um, the uh, the coronavirus, and the coronavirus has a new name. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Yeah, COVID nineteen, right? COVID nineteen, oh, as of February eleventh. Yep, COVID nineteen. So, yeah, the um, uh, and I think the recommendation was a um, social distancing of six mm-hmm. feet, you know, mm-hmm. which is about two meters, and that's increased in recent years, it used to be one meter, you know, and so, um, <clears throat> from my memory anyway, that's what I recall, and so I think, you know, the, again, the goal is to, you know, distance yourself so that, um, you know, if you are exposed, the concentration of virus that maybe you're exposed to is lower, um, or if you're in an environment where, you know, someone is, you know, symptomatic and you feel like you want to protect yourself, you know, you can pull out your um, N95 and, and put it on. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that's, you know, what, um, you know, like uh, personally, you know, I mean, if I'm going to be flying on an airplane or something like that and having one of those with me and I just happen to be sitting near someone who's coughing or sneezing and that sort of thing, I think, okay, well, maybe now is a good time, you know, to, to put on uh, this uh, respirator. Um, on the flip side, though, I think, you know, thinking about exposure and thinking about transmission, I mean, really, the majority, in my opinion, the majority of the transmission is, 
you know, person to person, so you're really close, you're touching contaminated surfaces, you're touching your face, you know, you're, um, or you're touching items that are, you know, um, contaminated, I guess I said, already said that, so touching surfaces that are contaminated, or you're touching the individual who's contaminated, and then touching yourself. I mean, the, I think that's primarily how it, how it's transmitted, and then secondarily, you know, if you're in a close proximity to someone and who's sneezing and coughing and you know, you're breathing that virus. It's very similar to a flu scenario. And, you know, kind of some of the, we don't know all the data yet, but it kind of looks like, you know, at this point, flu at least is, uh, the seasonal flu is, is um, you know, have more impactful on public health. I mean, more people die annually from seasonal flu than have died from this coronavirus for sure. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not, uh, it's kind of abnormal because the, you know, we don't see coronavirus outbreaks like this too often. Um, but from a public health impact standpoint, it's um, it's less impactful than than the seasonal flu. And just to just to put uh, to clarify one thing, when you're talking about you know throwing a mask on on an airplane, at least currently, the person who's next to you probably does have seasonal flu. It's more likely that they're coughing and sneezing from seasonal flu or a, you know a um, uh, cold from uh, you know a more common um, like Dr. Smith was talking last week the other kinds of coronaviruses that are just with us that aren't this COVID-19 um, or you know a rhinovirus but they have something more seasonal because we don't have um, transmission in the United States of of this um, of coronavirus currently or of the novel COVID-19. That's exactly it. I mean, there's a lot of respiratory viruses that are circulating. And, you know, I just had one two weeks ago, you know, and so mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it, it, it just happens. But I think the, the, the really, the, the good thing about this is it's starting the discussion about, you know, personal protection and, and transmission and how to prevent transmission. And I think, you know, these concepts apply across multiple types of viruses. And so from a public health standpoint, it's a it's a really good thing and and um, to, to talk about these things and increase awareness and you know have people uh, uh, so they can make better decisions about their health and and um, you know consider uh, vaccination for the seasonal flu. So overall, what could be used for the general public as personal protective equipment against the coronavirus? Do you just think it'd be an N95 mask if they see fit or? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, I mean, I would, that's something that, you know, there's um, a few steps, you know, that you need to take, like, you know, to properly use it, like to get fitted and that sort of thing. I mean, really, I think the most fundamental prevention strategy is um, social distancing and washing your hands. You know, those are like Mm -hmm. the most fundamental. And then if you were, say, traveling or going to be in an enclosed environment and you're concerned about, you know, you're concerned about inhalation exposure to virus, I mean, the next best step would be to, you know, find a, a respirator that fits you and just have one with you. And and if you're concerned about it, put it on, you know, and um, if you're, um, and, and go from there. But I think, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, walking around in, in public, just um, in general, you know, wearing personal protective equipment, I mean, I, I don't know that, I mean, it's possible that it could prevent some infection, but I think, you know, it's, um, the odds are that, you know, if you're outdoors, you know, the 
odds of you know being exposed to enough virus to cause an infection is pretty low. And also with that, if you're you know putting the same mask or respirator on day after day, and and you know it starts to get you know it can start to get contaminated, right? And and potentially cause harm to you because of things that can that can start growing on it. Right. Yeah. I mean, these are typically designed. The N95s are typically designed to be a single-use mask, you know, and so. Um, you know that's yeah that's kind of a that's another challenge and so the you're absolutely right they they um, they're not made for using for long periods of time and um, you know there's a medical evaluation that goes along or a medical questionnaire that goes along with using an N95 and then there's the fit you know so there's there's a couple things that you know um, have to be done you know to use these correctly and so um, and it's entirely possible to, you know, be fitted and to clear the use of a respirator with your physician. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that's entirely possible. Um, but it just, you know, takes a couple of steps. And, um, and you know, then you could have it if, if it's a concern for you. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was interesting that you brought up that just the hand washing is one of the main things. Because that's something, you know, CDC and WHO have really recommended as the current the best thing to be doing one because not only are you going to be protecting yourself from COVID-19 this novel coronavirus but you're also protecting yourself from everything ranging from your you know fecal oral transmission things um, like your foodborne illness as well as your you know current flu outbreak so yeah and I think the you know washing your hands is always a always a good idea and um we don't know this for COVID-19, but, you know, the infectious dose that's required uh, to result in a, an infection. And so, like, for viruses like measles, you know, where the dose, infectious dose is really small, it's one of the most infectious viruses on the planet, you know, we, we don't know that yet. And so I think just taking kind of a universal approach of, of hand-washing, you know, social distancing, if you see someone who's, you know, ill... If people call in sick and say, "Hey, I'm sick," say, "Hey, stay home." You know, we, you know, we know you're dedicated. We know you're a good employee, but you know, stay home. We, we don't want others to get the, uh, to get whatever you have. And um, so, I, I think those are really important things to think about. So, I think you've touched on this already, but briefly, what PPE should healthcare workers who are interacting with a patient with novel coronavirus, COVID-19? Um, what should they be wearing? That's a great question. And um, I mean, some of the uh, the footage I've seen, um, you know, it, it appears as as if the you know folks who are working with um, people who they suspect has COVID, have COVID nineteen, you know, they're wearing a full uh, barrier suit, like a um, you know a Tyvek style suit. Um, you know, they're wearing a hood. You know, a Tyvek hood. They're wearing a face shield. I think they have safety glasses and then I ha I've seen some wearing surgical masks and I've seen others wearing N95s and um, and of course gloves um, and uh, I don't know if they're wearing two layers of gloves or one layer of glove but um, you know essentially to you know work with Ebola patients um, you know that's a similar um, that's a similar uh, setup of PPE uh, to work with Ebola patients and again, the, the question is, is, you know, is the, all of that needed? And I don't know the answer, but of course, 
being in public health, we kind of, you know, um, uh, want people to be protected. So we just kind of don, you know, uh, things that we think are needed or might be needed. And then later as we learn more information, we say, okay, well, maybe we don't, um, you know, maybe we don't need a barrier uh, suit or, you know, maybe we don't need a hood. Um, uh, but again, that depends on, you know, infectious dose and, um, you know, um, the frequency of healthcare worker infection, basically when they're, when they're working with, um, patients that are sick. Do you think some of these heavy precautions are out of, because of SARS and other um, coronavirus that emerged in Asia um, you know, what, 15 years ago um, because of the large number of healthcare workers who are at risk and who ultimately contracted it during droplet transmission and um, setting of, or during medical procedures? Right. Yeah. I think that, the, you know, there's a lot of cases that have been documented of you know healthcare workers becoming sick you know from the SARS um, uh, outbreak and you know in particular when they're trying to treat people that have pneumonia and they're intubating them and you know um, we talk about this in the class but you know when you intubate someone you're basically looking right down their throat and your face is right next to their face and so you can see how you know if you're a healthcare provider you could be exposed you know to virus that the person is you know um, generating so so yeah I mean I, they probably don't know and and they don't you know the other thing we don't know is like um, you know the morbidity associated with the infection you know and so if uh, if the morbidity is really high you know um, that's really really tragic and so when we, you can prevent that by uh, prevent you know if you can prevent exposure by wearing a few more pieces of clothing to protect yourself I think it's a good idea at least until we, you know, kind of know how to better manage, you know, the, the virus. Yeah, and especially in those really high-risk populations, people who are definitely being exposed to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, healthcare work is, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> you're right in the thick of it. And, you know, the, uh, I mean, I, I haven't obviously worked in that environment, but just, you know, thinking about it, um, you know, you're there to help people and to help people get better. And, um, you know, so I imagine you're quite driven to do that. And sometimes you may not think about your own health and safety as much as you should. So I think it's, I mean, it, the footage I've seen, I think it's good. You know, the, um, the protective clothing that I've seen people wear, but of course, you know, I've heard of the case, like the, one of the physicians who I first you know, kind of sounded the alarm about the virus, you know, tragically he, he died, you know, from the virus. So, um, so yeah, it's clearly healthcare workers are being exposed and, and some are becoming sick and some are dying. Mm -hmm. So taking a step back, being a student in the classes that you teach, mm -hmm. you highly encourage the students to use social media in order to raise awareness. How can public health get better at leveraging these platforms? Mm -hmm. I think that's a, I think it's a, a, a great tool, you know, social media is. And I think, you know, um, I don't know what a great, what a term is for, except, you know, disseminating information, you know, um, frequently, you know, about like, you know, how to interpret, you know, the information that we have, the best approach, protect your health, protect the health of your family. And, you know, the, the perspective, you know, the, the risk, you know, to you and your family as, you know, we in real time as we see it. And then, um, you know, just the, I guess, uh, you know, data driven approaches for um, health protection. You know, I think that's that's 
a really good way, you know, to use social media. And, <clears throat> and of course, you know, the students and, and um, you know, people around the globe now, social media is such a powerful force. And, and uh, so you can share a lot of information in a pretty short period of time. And so the, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty powerful tool. On the flip side, you know, that tool can be used to uh, disseminate disinformation. And mm-hmm. I think I kind of mentioned earlier, but we, you know, I saw that, you know, there's a representative from the World Health Organization that was just meeting with Google and Facebook uh, over the list last week um, to talk about how to prevent disinformation and share more um, uh, or, you know, increase the quality of the information that's delivered to the public. So what else can people in public health do better in terms of getting our message across? Boy, what can we do better? I think just like sharing like factual like information on social mm-hmm. media and mm-hmm. telling our friends and mm-hmm. family members and peers like the real information and just trying to get rid of that disinformation and all the wrong stuff out there. Yeah, I think, you know, it's probably just to, you know, the being persistent with, you know, our message and, mm-hmm. you know, what we think is the correct information at the time. And, uh, um, you know, the, you know, a, re- a resource, I think, for that. And, and I don't know if, if the CDC has a podcast. I know they do have mm-hmm. a podcast for the Emerging Infectious Disease Journal. But I think, you know, even like their, um, you know, I was just on their website and and the CDC is a great resource, you know, for uh, very uh, summarizing uh, information and recommendations. And and so, um, you know, I think that would be, you know, um, like on a weekly basis or whatever or, you know, every other week, you know, sharing information from the CDC about you know, what, what's happening and what they recommend and for, you know, these type of public health um, uh, emergencies. And, and so I think it's a great resource. The World Health Organization is another one. Yeah, I think it's so important to be able to have the factual information from good, reliable sources that you can share out so everyone's on the same page. Right, absolutely. Yeah, totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. So stepping back to industrial hygiene, what do you find people get most wrong about industrial hygiene and public health on social media? Sure. Well, you know, the name is a little odd, right? Yeah. Industrial <laughs> hygiene. You know, what exactly does that mean? I was mean? confused and, about it, too, when I first learned about right, it. Right, right. And so, the, you know, in, in countries other than the U.S., they use the term occupational hygiene, and, and that's a little bit more descriptive, you know, that says, okay, well, you know, we're looking at the work environment and what's present in the work environment and what people are exposed to in the work environment. <clears throat> but even more broadly than that, you know, I think um, a, a, a better term is being, you know, um, our what we focus on is measuring human exposure, you know. And so that can be in the work environment, the home environment, you know, uh, <clears throat> the in, uh, environment, the, in the, I guess, the environmental uh, arena, you yeah. know, so we're yeah. like at a park or something like that. Like, what are we exposed to at a park, you mm-hmm. know, and that falls more um, a little broadly into the environmental health field of environmental health, which, which includes um, industrial hygiene. And so um, often when people ask me what I do, I say, well, I'm, a, I'm an exposure scientist. I measure what people are exposed to and then recommend, uh, provide recommendations or test technologies to try and control that ex- exposure or reduce uh, that exposure. So, 
Yeah, well said. I agree. Okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Emma's approval. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So are there any other things about this COVID-19 or about public health information and sharing of information that you, that you want to talk about today? Well, I think we've covered, you know, um, we've covered a lot of the topics that I wanted to talk about. But I think, you know, one thing that's interesting, too, is that, you know, often the, you know, there's a lot of focus on respiratory protection when when the virus is um, a respiratory virus, you know, and I think often, you know, it's, you know, that's not the only uh, time that people are at risk for exposure to biological agents, you know, when it's a respiratory virus. And so like uh, Ebola, for example, is not a respiratory virus, um, but we still see and see people use and recommend respiratory protection, you know? So I think, um, <clears throat> you know, thinking about like, um, you know, if, um, scenarios where, you know, aerosolization could occur, you know, that may not be from someone's lungs or someone sneezing or, or, that, or that sort of thing. You know, there still is a potentially could be a hazard there, you know, so we don't quite understand all that really well yet. But I know thinking about uh, the past a few years ago when Ebola kind of emerged again and, um, you know, I had a couple of people ask me, they're like, oh, well, you know, do they have to wear a respirator? And I'm like, oh, no, I don't think so. You know, it's not a respiratory virus. And I'm like, well, of course, I was wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, OK, well, you know, and I thought about it a little bit more. And I'm like, yeah, OK, if there's like aerosolization, you know, if you have a lot of sick people, a lot of virus contaminating the environment that can become aerosolized, people could become exposed to that. Um, and so that. So I think, you know, again, we don't understand the mechanism of all that yet, but I think not jumping to conclusions too much about, you know, based on the characteristics of the of the symptoms, you know, associated with that viral infection or with the target organ, I, I think, you know, um, being pretty precautious about handling, you know, someone who's who's sick, I think is a really is a really good idea. So <clears throat> Anyway, I was just thinking about about that and and uh, how we can jump to conclusions pretty quickly. And I'm pretty sure the CDC jumped to the same conclusion pretty quickly, and then they backpedaled. And mm-hmm. so the um, so I think you know thinking uh, a bit more broadly about these uh, problems and and um, you know um, not necessarily categorizing things immediately. I think the other thing too is um, <clears throat> you know uh, there's lots of scenarios where zoonotic um, or, uh, organisms emerge or they are transmitted you know a zoonotic organism basically is a is a virus that can infect animals and can infect people and so the you know this coronavirus is a zoonotic virus and so the um, there's a some sort of animal that it came from and and so looking at that uh, how did you know this virus jump you know from an animal to a human and, and thinking about how that happened, you know, was, was, was it a live animal market? Was it a pet? Was it, you know, an agricultural process or was it, um, you know, a, a hunter gatherer type thing? So. So what is one thing you thought you knew, but later realized you were wrong about? Ah, uh, yeah. So I kind of talked about that, you know, with mm-hmm. jumping to conclu- yeah. jumping to conclusions about, you know, the Ebola virus and, thinking, oh, no, it's not a it's not a respiratory virus. We don't need to think about respiratory protection. But, you know, there are 
are some cases where you really do need to think about that and 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 really the you know it's better to be precautious because you know you can get a, a respirator for you know a, a dollar you know or less than a dollar you know mm-hmm. they're not that expensive and so um, I think being precautious is a good plan definitely and and lastly what's something outside of the world of public health that's really interested you recently so I really like, um, let's see, oh boy, outside the world of public health. <laughs> so I really like working with the undergrads, you know, here on campus and, and um, you know, with the class I'm teaching, that's been really fun. Um, you know, I, I really like working with, you know, the graduate students to, um, you know, develop a research question or to find, you know, help them with their internships. Um, so I really, really enjoy working with students. It's kind of, you know, associated with um, public health because I'm, I'm in public health. Um, and then um, uh, what else? I think the um, uh, I like basketball. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like basketball a lot. Um, so. Um, yeah, yeah, good answer. Okay. Can't really <laughs> think of, of much else, but... Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. So, okay, what do you think about the interview? And do you have any new thoughts on coronavirus since uh, since we recorded it? I think most times when we're going through the cases of coronavirus, we also need to keep in mind how these cases are being found or what was the criteria of inclusion for these different cases. So cases jumped. Oh, a number of cases jumped? Yeah, so last week, or right around when we released the episode, uh, there was a ten to 15,000 case jump in a single day, and a lot of people kind of got scared by that, but it wasn't what they thought. It wasn't that there were suddenly ten to 15,000 new people infected with coronavirus. It was that the way we were quantifying those cases had been different. So instead of requiring genetic testing or confirmation through through the, those methods, um, instead it was, um, you know, using the syndrome of someone having pneumonia and then also an X-ray to, to confirm that it was that it was um, what they thought it was. Okay, have have you heard about any of the outbreaks of some, when we talk about information, some of the maybe darker sides with with racism and some of the xenophobia have you heard about any of those stories yeah so i heard actually i saw online on one of these social media that um someone basically said how um an asian female literally like in a library had to write on a piece of paper I don't have the coronavirus. It's okay for you to sit down next to me. And she slid it towards him. And then he basically was telling people how 
you guys need to stop with the whole racist remarks not everyone that you see of a certain descent has coronavirus and now there's that whole stigma and i think it's also the same thing when ebola too was a thing everyone was just very like against this one group because they were the ones who had the highest cases but really and i had someone else ask me oh can africans get coronavirus because now they've associated coronavirus with an asian thing and i'm like yes anyone can get <laughs> anyone can get coronavirus it's not um and cause or designated to this specific group it just emerged from this group first or it was seen in this group first it doesn't mean oh you can't get it or everyone from that group has it so show love show compassion and stop with the stigma i think i think going along with that there's been a lot of you know, we, we're making this series because there's been a lot of really bad information put out around coronavirus. And I want to talk about probably one of the worst things I've seen about it being pushed out at a, by a very couple very prominent figures. I'm not going to say their names. Um, they are in politics and we're not a partisan show. But people have been, uh, quote unquote, asking questions about whether or not coronavirus is a bioweapon that was leaked because Wuhan has a biosafety la level four laboratory. And I just want to say there is absolutely no evidence that that would be the case. Um, asking questions is, uh, is not a bad thing, but when you ask them with absolutely no evidence and evidence to the contrary, we know that coronavirus is around 98 to 99% similar to an existing um, coronavirus in uh, in bats in in China so it's very likely that this was just a spillover spillover event just like SARS just like Ebola was um, and so the idea that this was a bioweapon that was released has direct evidence to the contrary so it's it's not reasonable to be addressing that and it's the correct forum for that is not a legislator jumping on national television and say and asking the question with absolutely no answer or addressing the fact that we have plenty of evidence to the contrary mm -hmm. like it's fine for everyone to have their own opinions but when your your opinion is probably heavily misinformed and if you're like an influencer or you have people following you i guess it's just best to like kind of keep your opinions to yourself for the most part until you're sure you know like because i think it is one thing for like us like me if i just want to state my opinion out there I, even at that i'm also conscious as to not like really write controversial things that could still like mislead at that one person that could then make it into a thing i never know but then for you to be like this huge person and then you're just dating your opinion on something that still has people like in mad hysteria and people are still wondering what's going on and then you're coming and then you're adding fuel to the fire i think it's just unnecessary yeah and and i think that one of the interesting things that matt addressed during his during his talk was just how we can as public health people you know we can better use social media how we can better connect with people um in order to get out the information that you know that he was getting out the fact that washing your hands is probably the best thing you can be doing and if you are using a respirator you need to be changing that routinely because otherwise you're just you may not actually be protecting yourself as much as you think you are, especially if it isn't fitting correctly, mm -hmm. but also that you're going to be trapping lots of other virus particles and, and bacterial particles that can make you sick in other ways. So mm -hmm. um, that, you know, hand washing is incredibly important.
And yeah, so. Wait, but yeah, so talking about PPE, personal production equipment. equipment. <laughs> so, like, I've seen some mass face masks where it's like a trend, like, it's actually fabric. So, it's like this whole black or oh, aesthetic. Yeah, but there's this whole aesthetic one. So, it's like aesthetically pleasing. So, people are using that instead of using like the plain. Um, surgical ones that's like the blue ones and stuff and i just like how often do people wash that or like use that i don't know i just have so many questions anyway any other thoughts about coronavirus covid19 or our conversation with matt no covid19 just makes it sound so cool but it's not cool <laughs> it's not cool <laughs> but no that's all i had to say all right, well, if you are interested in the infectious disease world, there are a couple things that we want to promote that might help you get more involved with it. So first, check out IPHA's Iowa Immunizes Project, which is hoping, down, which is hoping to tamp down on preventable infectious diseases here in Iowa. Uh, the IPHA, uh, the Iowa Public Health Association, is just an amazing organization, so do check that out. Yeah. So, and save the date and register early. The ninth annual Great Plains Emerging Infectious Disease Conference will take place on March 27th, 2020 at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. The GPEID conference highlights basic applied epidemiological and translational research in biomedical and veterinary disciplines. We're pleased to announce that this year, our keynote speaker is Dr. Jane Sao. Early registration ends February 28th. That's next Friday. Let us know what you thought about this episode at cphgradambassador at uiowa.edu, cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. That's it for this week. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Oge Chibo, Emma Mether, and Ian Bukta. This episode was produced by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Matt Nonneman. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week. <laughs>